Welcome back to Shad on TV, Game of Thrones edition, the unofficial podcast companion piece to the hit juggernaut HBO series, Game of Thrones. I'm one of your hosts, Roger Roper, and alongside me are my two co-hosts, Big D, Dick Ebert. Good evening. And Gene Jormont Lyons. You are my weakness. And this is our Instacast episode where we share our quick takes on this week's episode of Game of Thrones. This week's episode was entitled Stormborn, in which Daenerys receives an unexpected visitor, John faces a revolt, Sam's risk career and life's, and Tyrion plans the conquest of Westeros. Guys, this is the uh, immediate reaction podcast just for our first-time listeners. So we have done very little research. Uh, it's it's literally 15 minutes after we watched the episode. Uh, what was your immediate take, and what things will we be talking about this week on our deep dive and in our fan email episode? I think the big thing for me was, uh, you know, we had episode one set up a ton of questions. Uh, episode two did a great job of answering a lot of those. We were wondering, how will they attack from Dragonstone? We got answers to that. We got, how do the Lannisters plan on winning? We got answers to that. And uh, several other questions that we had running through our minds, uh, They, in quick order, they just answered them, plus a lot of action. I thought this was a great episode. Yeah, I agree. I think it's it's one. it might be one of my favorite episodes of the entire series. I thought it was emotional. It did a great job to tie a lot of callbacks, even back to season one. It really seemed to be the culmination. We said last week was a bit slow, and it was the start of something. You could see it picking up speed. I loved it. I want to turn around and watch it again. But the emotional component was what really struck me. Is it interesting to you that the producers are taking a very deliberate turn in season seven towards the finish line? Like, they're wrapping up everything. There's not one episode yet thus far where they're not tying a loose end. I think if we reach the finish line with a satisfying conclusion and all these uh, all these loose ends figured out, why would they even do a, a, a spinoff series? This, this would be perfection. Well, one of the things I found very interesting is every time I think a new character is being introduced in season seven, I realize that, no, no, this guy has been here since season one. You know, one of the things I was talking about was with uh, Randall Tarly. You know, he's he's uh, I'm like, oh, I don't remember this guy, like new character. You know, and I, I started typing in like think new character alert. Here's a new guy we got to watch. No, the Tarleys have been involved in this storyline from season one. And it's just a, a wonderful way that like, you know, like Big D said that they're bringing that they're using they're introducing fresh action and fresh character development into the show with characters that we've seen in the past, which is an amazing, how many other shows can do this over seven years span? That's incredible. What really I liked besides the emotional component that I'll get into a bit was finally characters have learned the entire first part of the planning in the war room in Dragonstone. Every lesson was learned. People have come about all the the journey to get here was actually fruitful. It, It paid off. Melisandre, she admits prophecies are tricky. She doesn't have it all figured out. Varys is honest. He looks her in the face and does not play his normal role of the whisperer in the background. He's going to be honest. And, and Daenerys, she forgives Varys, something she never would have done two seasons ago. You look at what she did to Jorah. She sent him off because he lied. She even forgives Melisandre. And Tyrion, he is going out on a limb for her. And he says, do you want to be the Queen of Ashes? And she takes his advice. And she uses that line later in the episode when she's trying to rally the troops. So nice to see people are learning and not bound to make the same mistakes. I think one gorgeous example of this is you see, uh, you know, one of the things I was really looking forward to this season was uh, Nymeria, you know, the dire wolf coming back into play. 
And uh, and I thought my dream is coming through. You know, we see Namiria and Arya meeting in the forest, and I thought, oh, this is the reunion. But no, again, lessons learned. You know, Arya says that's not you. Uh, you know, th- coming back with her, going back to Winterfell, and so this is a heartbreaking parallel. She understands that as she has taken her path uh, away from being the the princess that her father saw her as, Namiria has taken her own path. Right, her own found her own freedom in her own pack. Uh, and taking her own you know, journey through life, uh, again, it was just this reintroduction of a character, lesson learned, totally the, the, the theme of the episode. Well, uh, Gene and I talked about this on the uh, on the small council, the Red Keep Diaries that we do every Thursday, about uh, how I definitely didn't want to see another goddamn direwolf die. And one of them might be Nymeria. Okay, so it looks like Nymeria is safe, right? If this is the end of Nymeria's story, we're good, right? But in the same fucking episode, Game of Thrones, in the same one, you take us down to the basement, Queen Cersei, and she's got down down, down there some blacksmiths that are making this dragon killer. What is this about, and uh, should I be scared? Yeah, I mean, I, I thought they would come up with a, a solution that was a little more eloquent than a, a giant crossbow, but you know, but we're seeing it, and this is how the Lannisters, you know, plan to to stop dragons uh, with with firepower. Again, you know, one of the things to think about though in this world, if you if you see it as a parallel to the real world, is that technology has always brought about a shift in military tactic, right? Uh, game changers, and so I think that this this crossbow, you know, dragons were the game changer that your armies and everything are worthless against these dragons. Now you have technology that can take them out it's it's you know it's a little daunting yeah but they explain it kyburn has done the research he has the story and has the knowledge that the dragons were injured and potentially could be killed when they were the fighting pits and marine so it's now logical that they're going to develop a weapon that they could take them down so i think it's completely plausible weapons of the of the time were primarily siege weapons you're not going to get a trebuchet and you're not going to get any kind of a catapult to hit them so the crossbow makes logical sense. I just hope they're making more than one of them. Well, one thing that I really like that this episode has done, and again, I think it's shown the rapid speed that the showrunners want to take this season, is that we're not waiting episodes for all these houses to get together. By episode two of season seven, everyone's in the fucking throne rooms. They're planning out their sieges, their attacks. There's none of this, uh, the Hobbit, let's stretch this out across uh, three movies, right? And what's really amazing about that is, you know, you talk about that that planning stage in Dragonstone. You've got the, you know, the members from Dorne. You've got the Tyrells. Danny's there. Varys is there. Uh, you've got Tyrion there, and it doesn't feel forced. It doesn't feel like it doesn't make sense when they're all in the room together. No part of me said, "What's going on here?" It was like, "Yes, this this feels natural. This feels like a a logical progression of the of the battle uh, plan." And so f- for me, I, again, it's that's a very hard thing to pull off. On any lesser show, I'd be like, "How the fuck did everybody get here, and why are they here?" Yeah, and when, when's the last time that you saw four powerful women sitting around? essentially a war room table and planning out tactics if these were old guys we wouldn't question it and i thought the women were powerful it was great they questioned daenerys's strategy they said so you want us to fight and it was logical that you would want uh, westerosi forces to lay siege to king's landing so it, they're not playing into that fear mongering that jamie and cersei are doing with all the lords and they push back and forth very real genuine and it was nice to see that the women are as capable as the guys not only that, but it seems as if the women of uh, this council are more savvy than the men. Uh, w- what's your t- whole take on uh, Lady Tyrell pulling Danny aside and, and saying, hey, she needs to go away from the men in her life, the Tyrians of the world, and be her own dragon? 
will this cause a rift in this already short fellowship? I think this is a question that uh, Danny is faced with several times in in Game of Thrones. You know, it's it's mercy versus you know a ruthless hand, and and you can see the arguments in both ways. I mean, Tyrion's plan is is merciful, uh, but it requires patience and it requires everything to go right. You know, it's it's complicated, it's sophisticated. Uh, you know, the the plan that you're getting from Elena is far more blunt, far more forceful. Uh, but I like seeing this this dichotomy that she's got to deal with. You know, as as Tyrion says, you're not here to be the queen of ashes. But how do you reconcile that with the fact that she is, you know, the mother of dragons? And dragons, by definition, they burn shit up. I also took from that uh, the conversation they had. She's telling her, don't forget your roots. She's not trying to sway her or pull her away from Tyrion. She's saying, don't forget what you are at your core. You can listen to these men, but in the end, go with what you decide and to remain strong. So I don't think she's asking her to betray her character or betray Tyrion's advice. Just don't forget who you are. And a lot of times people forget. So some key things we took away from this drag Dragonstone scene. Uh, one is that we now know that the, the Sands and the Tyrells are allies to Danny. So that's been arranged. Uh, and that's, you know, a key point to take away. The, another one that was key uh, to take away is that is that while the Westerosi forces are going to be laying siege to uh, King's Landing, the Unsullied will be taking Casterly Rock, which is, I mean, not to glance over the fact that this is Tyrion's home. This is this is him turning on his family. He is pledging allegiance uh, completely away from. If you thought that he was going to have any mercy or any care for the the Lannister name or for Jaime and uh, Cersei, I think that here you see that he is fully on board and, and and willing to attack his own home. And I think it makes complete sense. It is the surprise attack that no one would expect. Cersei is expecting a full frontal attack. Everyone's saying attack King's Landing. So it's nice to see that she's going to go another way, and I think it'll be very effective. Well, you're starting to see, I mean, there are a couple rifts there, and it doesn't seem as if Jamie is completely on board with what Cersei has to do either. So could it come down where Tyrion maybe spares Jamie, but not Cersei? Oh, I don't think Jamie or Cersei will even be at Casterly Rock when this happens. No one's going to see it coming. They, they're marshalling their forces to fight from King's Landing, not knowing that their own home will be will be taken away from them. And and this also isn't something that's going to take a long time to develop. You, you can you can see that they want to move fast, and they're not going to be launching their attack from Dragonstone either. Uh, you know, Tyrion says we won't be in Dragonstone long. You know, it's not. They plan to move very very quickly. It's going to be an aggressive campaign. I think that it's going to be well underway early into the season. I think this is also the first time we've ever seen diplomatic Cersei and diplomatic Jaime. They've never had to actually negotiate terms or or loyalty with anyone before. It's normally dictating terms. To have to stand there and use fear-mongering. Uh, do, you know, I think Jamie says, do you want to have these foreign savages and eunuchs on our on our soil raping and pillaging? They're begging for support. And it's the first time we've seen them feel vulnerable and actually display it in front of those who they usually command with an iron fist. So talking about vulnerability, uh, what did you guys think about that scene with uh, Jorah and Samwell at the Citadel? I, you know, I really liked that scene until they got to the, you know, the, uh, the they did a repeat of Poop and Porridge, 
where they're like cutting through the grayscale and then they went to like the pudding. I thought that was a little childish, but other than that, you know, I thought it was uh, uh, it was a great scene to watch. I mean, they they shot it beautifully uh, with uh, you know with with the excruciating bit that they had to go through and and Sam, true to character, you know, being a sweetheart, trying to like shh, I'm just gonna you know basically flay you, but just try to be quiet, okay, please. But it makes logical sense. You would ask, why would Sam risk it? But he puts the pieces together when he finds out what his name is and how important he is and that he served under his father. It makes complete sense. Uh, you know, when, when Rob is explaining to the, the Bannerman of the North that he should go meet a Lannister, and he says, I've met him. He was on the road to when I was going to, to join the, the Night's Watch. He signs it in a way that John would know that it is him. They're answering all the questions in such a streamlined way that I think is beautifully done and makes logical sense. So in order to uh, cure Grayscale, you first have to flay it completely off, then insert dragon glass. Is that how it happens? Uh, it seems like from what Samuel said is he's got to remove all the infected tissue, and then he's got to spread sort of an ointment uh, made with the dragon glass onto the onto the where the tissue was. So that whole back area, of the chest, it's going to be a long and excruciating experience for Jorah. Uh, so it's like spending uh, my spring breaks as a child at Daytona Beach without sunscreen on, uh, combined with aloe. Uh, finally, uh, we get to uh, pirates of the uh, Game of Thrones. Right at the end, little this now this was more exciting uh, than than Johnny Depp's latest foray in the uh, fifth Pirates film. Yeah, I, uh, one of the things you know you mentioned before, Big D, that we saw uh, Jamie and Cersei kind of talking the talk, and we've seen them walk the walk before. Here it was kind of a reversal where you've seen Euron Greyjoy, you know, talk the talk, but you never saw him in action, and here we get to see him, and it, it is it is fearsome. That scene where they where they kind of drop the hammer onto the ship and he's right on there, jumps out with the axe. You know this guy is he means business. Dude, he's the first one out in front, and he completely lives up to the legend. We've always heard that the the Greyjoys are masters of the sea. They have it down to a science. From that broadside, you know, ram that they have, and they have some kind of underwater protrusion that actually ruptures the hull of Theon's ship. Yeah, I, I, the only part of it I really didn't dig is that, you know, we saw that that Sand Snakes made short work of Braun and Jamie. I thought it was a little odd that it took two of them, and Euron with an axe can take them both out after a good four minutes of fighting other people. It seemed a little, seemed a little much for me. Yeah, but this is the great thing about Game of Thrones is that you think they may take, you know, not the same type of liberty with another character or they try and, you know, bring a villain into a hero. But what I love is that they keep the core of the character. And the fact that Theon Greyjoy gives up at the end and dives off the boat, that is a show telling its audience that we understand that you guys get this show and we're not gonna you know play a big fuck you by making him a hero at the end right because they built him up as a character over the last seven seasons to be one that you're not quite sure where he's gonna go because he's had all this fucking traumatic trauma in his life and let's not act like that's an easy thing for hbo to do because there will be fans i guarantee you who are going to be upset about this who are going to be like i wanted to see him step up and be the hero that's people want to feel good right that's not what this show is though this is he what happened to theon does not 
go away from you, right? That is, he is scarred. And they show, they do a very good job of showing a guy getting, you know, hacked up and another guy getting stabbed. And he's remembering back to everything that happened to him and the potential. But here's the thing is that another thing the Game of Thrones does is it is very fatalistic. It shows that things happen for a reason. And I really do believe that if he had tried to step up and, you know, fight Euron, not only is he going to get killed, but he's going to get his sister killed too. And this way they both survive. So I'm not saying he did it intentionally, but it's probably the best way to handle the situation is to get the fuck out of there. And now it justifies that, what was it, five or six episodes of Theon being tortured by Ramsay that seemed like it went on and on and on and on. You needed to watch Theon broken to have it pay off in this moment where he has a chance to, even though the odds are against him, to save his sister who was the only one who had his back and went to rescue him, and he can't do it. Without us watching him broken, it doesn't pay off now two, three seasons later. I just wish it would have happened like five minutes later because the Yara and Alaria thing was going really well. I kind of could have watched a little more of that. That would have been, I mean, if I could trade in any scene in Game of Thrones, just let that happen once. Well, there was one love uh, love scene that we haven't talked about that maybe we will right after this one. But the fact now that Euron has, has sunk or is now controlling all of the other Grey, the other Greyjoy's ships and men, who will be the gift that he returns back to Cersei? Oh, it's clearly Ilaria, right? He captures her alive. There's, there, there, you know that the men that were sent below deck were, were told with, the, you know, they had express commands not to kill her. Uh, they're going to deliver her to Cersei. Remember, she is responsible for the death of Cersei's daughter. Cersei would like nothing better than to have that revenge. So they're going to deliver Ilaria alive to uh, King's Landing. And that makes complete sense in the the description of next week's episode that it it referenced Cersei returning a gift. And we all assumed it was going to be taking a gift and and returning it to the sender. It is, but it will be death. They're going to be paying back Ilaria for, for the poisoning. And interestingly enough, this explains, again, one of the things that we were talking about is if it was going to be somebody's head... He would just deliver that person's head. If it was going to be an object, he would just deliver the object. He didn't show up. But he needed them to set sail before he could do that. He needed to have them in the right spot. So the timing makes sense. Again, great bit of writing from the Game of Thrones staff in in making all these dots connect and not leaving any questions out there as to why. I talked earlier that I felt it was such an emotionally impactful episode, whether it was the look between you know Theon and his sister and, and Euron at that moment. But watching Arya meet up with Hot Pie, and there's that cold, emotionless veneer that she has. When she learns that her brother is still alive, and he's now back in Winterfell, and there's a chance that her family still exists, that scene, I got goosebumps. Like, seeing her realize that she can connect with her former life, and she doesn't have to lead the existence of the faceless men and continue going around without ties to anyone. But of course, right on the tail end of that, Game of Thrones loving to break our hearts and twist that knife, John leaves before she can make it to Winterfell. So she's not going to see him. We see the clue that she's going to Winterfell by the by the snow and the cold and the run-in with the direwolves. Uh, but John leaves Winterfell to Sansa. You see Littlefinger kind of smirking with joy at this opportunity. And I think that, you know, a lot of people might have cheered for Jon Snow for, you know, choking uh, Littlefinger and telling him to stay away from his sister. But I think that John actually, again, being a dope, made a mistake there. He showed Littlefinger exactly how to get under his skin, exactly how to make him lose his cool. Uh, He showed a weakness there. Yeah, completely dumb. You're leaving 
and you're going to piss off someone who is completely untrustworthy, who has a thing for your sister, who's now in charge, and you know he's a master manipulator. Dumb timing. I can understand John got upset, but you don't do it when you're about to leave. The thrones giveth and the thrones taketh. Uh, one of the, but one of the scenes that uh, the thrones did giveth is the the Grey Worm and Missandei love scene. Uh, Gene, you've been a critic of the show in the past for having senseless nudity. Was this one of those moments, or did you feel like this added to the story? Oh my god, I love the fact that they lingered on this. I love the fact that they gave it time to play out. That there was they let us see the uh, the shame that he feels about his body this this figure that is that is monolithic that is unshakable that is the unsullied and and a warrior without fear and he has body shame i mean and 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 the comfort that she brings him but the fact that they lingered on i could see people i watched in a room with like six other people i could see people uncomfortable with what was going on on screen but i felt this did redeem game of thrones for pointless nudity in previous seasons um i also thought that uh you know that her reaction to him was so beautiful and again they kept it true to the character the way that gray worm says i love you is you are my weakness. That's that's what it translates to, to him. Now I have fear. It was it was absolutely beautiful. It was heartbreaking. Um and and just again, I I really hope that these two characters, you know, they give us a lot to care about, and I hope they do well. Yeah. Spoiler alert. That's also how I act uh, every time a I'm in front of a girl and have to take my shirt off. So a little little background there. <laughs> a little performance anxiety. <laughs> a, lot, a lot of performance anxiety, but I try hard. So I was watching with my girlfriend's dad, and he's sitting right next to me on the couch, and he straight up goes, guess now we're going to see his gray worm. And I was just like, oh, this is so awkward right now. So those are uh, just some of the topics, uh, plus much more that we'll be talking about in our deep dive on Tuesday. Guys, is there anything we've left out from the Instacast uh, that you want to talk about before we get ready for our second watches uh, and let the audience start sending in their emails? great episode i can't wait to watch it again i might do it right after we uh, post this instacast i will let you know that the game of thrones experience here at san diego comic-con this year uh you had to get in line on friday to be able to make it in on sunday so i apologize for not uh for not braving that line did they uh they started doing tv stuff at comic-con <laughs> <laughs> that's right it's no longer just comics that's crazy dude maybe i'll go next year that sounds fun <laughs> It was everything you told. But hey, my my good buddy, uh, who I was here with, uh, his documentary, the documentary about him, uh, it won the best documentary award at San Diego Comic Con. So if I could give a plug for him, uh, his uh, his wrestler name is QT Marshall, but it's spelled like Marshall, and that's the whole gimmick. Uh, but look for it; it's the wrestler, a QT Marshall story. Uh, just Google it; it'll take you to links. Uh, share it. Uh, with a friend uh, th- it really is a great movie it really is a fantastic movie so uh, thanks to Mike and, and everyone over there all the producers of the movie also big thanks to uh, to Raj for representing uh, on the throne on the Game of Thrones uh, uh, bar crawl pub crawl <laughs> I think we made I think we made it to three bars and then we were like let's no one no one's doing this let's just leave but we kept taking pictures of the, you you're trying to get points for characters 
but they, the characters had to be on the bar crawl. They had to be part. And we were like, look at look at this fucking one one. He's an amazing one one. Follow me at Roger underscore Roper. You can see all my photos. So anyway, well that does it for this Instacast version of On the Throne Game of Thrones podcast by Shout on TV. Be sure to subscribe and share with a friend. That really helps the podcast grow. You can also follow us on social media. Our handle is at Shout on TV. Our website is ShoutOnTV.com. You can email us your thoughts, opinions, and predictions at hosts at ShoutOnTV.com. The best emails of the week are read and responded on Thursdays and then posted on our website. Uh, also, if you're a fan of the podcast, please be sure to leave a five-star review. That helps the podcast grow. Uh, you can also check out our sister podcast, Shout the Movies, where we watch 80s and 90s movies that you vote on. And on behalf of my co-host, Big D, and Gene Jormont Lyons, I'm Roger Roper from San Diego Comic-Con saying good night. Be sure to join us on our deep dive and be sure to knock twice before joining us on the throne. <laughs>